Hey, have you got bare walls at home or in your office? Do you want to surround yourself with the majesty and inspiration of our mountains? I'm talking truly incredible photography of Western North Carolina landscapes. RedRockPhotoNC.com. Stay tuned for details. It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What's going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. The show is made possible by a great many people. We call them patrons because they donate money to make the show happen. Uh, and you can too, by the way. Head on over to thepetecalendarshow.com and you can see at the top there's a link. It says become a patron. There are a bunch of other links too there as well. Like, for example, the marketplace uh, where you can get all of the, the cool shirts and hats that you never knew you needed until I just said it right now. Also, other local businesses, uh, if you want your business lo- uh, or, uh, uh, put up onto the Marketplace, located in the Marketplace website, just uh, let me know, send me an email, and I'll get it in there. Uh, the whole point here is to uh, connect people and businesses of like mind. And uh, some of the patrons, as I was starting to say, like Bob and Jocelyn and Sarah and Trent and LL and Daryl and Eric, and Meredith, and Paul, and Janet. I appreciate the support. Thank you so much. Uh, I literally could not do the show without people uh, that have helped me so far. Uh, And uh, by the way, if you do become a patron, you get access to the exclusive content, such as, glad you asked, the live streams. We do live stream uh, every Thursday, and we were looking to do events. We were actually uh, getting that up and off the ground months ago and then the plague hit and so we haven't been able to do the uh to do the events at this time but i am looking forward to the day when i can because people deserve it you'll deserve it really me not so much you definitely um there are other people who don't deserve it either that's true right but you guys deserve it um you deserve also to sleep on a fantastic mattress why are you not sleeping on a great mattress do you wake up in pain Do you have to sort of like roll a couple times left, then right, then left, then right in order to gain momentum, in order to roll out of the big crater that is your mattress, right? If that's you, (laughs) uh, first off, I've been there. I sympathize. Uh, But why are you still doing that? Go to Mattress Man all this month. It is, uh, we got, what, seven days left here in June 2020. And so all this month, you go to Mattress Man and you get zero, zero, zero. You get the zero down. You get the 0% APR for up to two years and zero payments for 90 days. Win, 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 and win for you and your partner. So it would be win, 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 right? So, and I guess, well, a sixth win also then for Mattress Man. So, okay, well, you can see where this is going. It's just a great idea. Get yourself a fantastic mattress. They have all of the kinds of mattresses that you're looking for, whether it's the memory foam or it's the traditional inner spring or it's the pillow top or natural latex. Uh, They have, for example, Nature's Spa. This is the newest brand of mattresses by Paramount Sleep. That is, uh, it's a series of hybrid mattresses and it's sold through Bloomingdale's. Um, It's featured at Blackberry Farm in Tennessee. They also have the Biltmore collection, the Biltmore line. This is from Restonic. That's made in Fayetteville. And these are the mattresses at the Biltmore Inn and Hotel. Okay. So if you want the sleep you deserve, then please see my friends at Mattress Man. They're practicing all the safety protocols, the distancing and the, the sanitizing and the, uh, the, you know, the single-use pillow covers and the masks and everything. Okay. Five-star delivery service. 120-day comfort guarantee, and they do ship nationwide, okay? Experience the difference at Mattress Man. Find the store nearest you. They have four in Asheville, Arden, Hendersonville. Go to the website, mattressmanstores.com, plural, because there are four of them. Mattressmanstores.com, buy local, and sleep better. All right, so how about that runoff election in the 11th Congressional District? (laughs) Wow. Um, uh, Madison Cawthorn beating Linda Bennett by like a two to one margin. Uh, I even had somebody uh, send me a tweet that they said there's no way Madison Cawthorn got 65, 66 percent of the vote. Uh, It's got to be vote fraud. 
because Linda Bennett had the endorsements of not just Donald Trump, but also uh, Mark Meadows. And um, they thought that this person thought that that should have carried more weight. However, I would point out Madison Cawthorn had all of the endorsements of all of the other candidates from the primary. And that's no small feat, right? Really, that's no small feat because there was... Uh, there were like 14 million candidates in that primary, uh, and they all turned. I'm just kidding. There were, I think, 12, and uh, they all went for Cawthorn. I'm not aware of another situation like that occurring. Um, so, first off, yes, it's impressive. It's an impressive win. Um, is this a, 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 a referendum, an indictment on Donald Trump? No, I don't think it is. I think there are a lot of people who are wish casting it to be so, right? They they don't like Donald Trump and they're so waiting for Donald Trump to be off the stage. And so and this is, by the way, Republicans and Democrats alike. And so uh, they are essentially trolling Trump saying, oh, look at that. Yeah, you endorsed Linda Bennett and she lost. Ha ha ha. You stink. Your near perfect record. This is the thing that gets me too. like everybody is saying, oh, he was you know, nearly perfect on everyone that he's. He's endorsed, you know, every time he says this, he goes on stage and he says, I endorse all these candidates, and when I endorse them, they win. Well, it's not actually true. I know, shocker of shockers, Trump said something that's not true. But uh, it's not always true. He has he doesn't have a, a, a 100% record on this. I mean, it's pretty close to 100%, but there are other people that have already lost that he endorsed, right? Why am I saying this? Because it's such a stupid talking point that people are using to attack Trump with. I don't, I don't, I do get it, actually. I actually do get it. Yeah, because everything has to be viewed through the prism of Donald Trump because we are all stupid. <laughs> like, I, what else, what other conclusion is there? Okay, look, I get it. Trump made the endorsement, right? But that doesn't, did you think that that was going to overcome all of the other problems that Linda Bennett had? As a candidate, and she had problems as a candidate. She did. She, okay, so, well, let me start it this way. I have this, uh, and these are examples Politico and CNN. Here's how they both start their articles. Let me start here with CNN. They say a 24 year old political newcomer defeated President Donald Trump's endorsed candidate in the North Carolina GOP congressional primary for the seat vacated by the president's chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Madison Cawthorn beat Linda Bennett, a stunning upset in the race for the Republican nomination in the state's 11th congressional district. Okay, Um, so again, framing it through the prism of Trump um, that, you know, the 24-year-old political newcomer defeats Trump's endorsed candidate. All right, well, they're both Republicans. Madison Cawthorn, also a fan of Trump's, also praised Donald Trump. Um, So it's not like some Democrat beat Trump's endorsed candidate, but whatever. Um, that's CNN's focus. Here's Politico. President Donald Trump's perfect endorsement record, but not true, perfect endorsement record in GOP primary elections crashed with a thud Tuesday night when his choice for an open seat in Western North Carolina was drubbed by a 24-year-old first-time candidate. She was also a first-time candidate. Linda Bennett was a first-time candidate. Right? They make it sound like she was this polished, like, super candidate that trump was like yes this is my gal and then all of a sudden you know out of nowhere this guy madison cawthorn's like uh oh i'm just a kid and i'm gonna beat you oh look at that i beat you really badly it must be because everybody hates trump and that's not what it was about this is what it's why it's why this week i talked to Corey valencourt from the smoky mountain news it's why i've interviewed both madison cawthorn and linda bennett right this we all know everybody who's paying attention in the 11th congressional district right we all know what that race was about, right? We all knew what happened. And here's the big takeaway, at least in my view. Candidates matter. I've been been—I've preached this for years. Candidates matter. You know, you can only do so much to drag a bad candidate over the finish line, especially if all you're doing, like with, and in Trump's case with Linda Bennett, it was what, sent out a tweet and then he sent out another tweet some weeks later or something, and he did a robocall, right? Uh, like, that's it. That that was the extent of, of the help. He gave. And look, I get it. You can't do rallies and that sort of thing. But I'm not sure how much help you can actually 
provide her. And the uh, the campaign trail, when she was out on it, you know, when she's not doing the, you know, Zoom meetings or whatever, I don't know how do you even campaign during the pandemic. Um, which, by the way, side note, pandemic is a word that apparently, uh, I think it's Instagram, like, restricts that word for some reason. I don't, I don't understand why, but whatever. Um, Linda Bennett would go to these events uh, bef- particularly before the the lockdowns occurred and all, and uh, she would get into some sort of testy exchanges with GOP voters. Um, I've said this before, also there that uh, Madison Cawthorn and Linda Bennett they are both you know local Republicans. They they worked like Cawthorn worked in Meadows' office, right? Um, these people know each other. All of these people kind of know each other. But I mean, Madison was young, and so like people heard about his story. Um, before, you know, he became a candidate and all, but, uh, and so he wasn't really well known, but everybody knows each other and the actors and, uh, you know, they've worked together on campaigns and stuff. And it really split various alliances in the district among Republican and conservative voters. And it got nasty, got nasty. So a couple things I think really hurt Bennett's campaign. Number one, she was the victim of a, of a smear job, uh, not that I think this was the word, the the most important or the most impactful, I should say, but it did. It, it was sticky, as the, we like to say in the media biz. It stuck. The idea that she uh, described herself as a never Trumper. She did not. To be clear, she never said she was a never Trumper. Right? She never said that. What happened was they were discussing palm cards at some. I think it was the Haywood County. Um, Republican Party, you know, was some sort of organizing meeting and they were uh, debating whether to draw up the palm cards and Linda Bennett uh, was having this discussion with people and, and the people in the audience were like, well, we don't like this. I think it was a county commissioner. We don't think he's actually a Republican. He's not conservative enough. And so we don't want to hand out fly- these uh, flyers or palm cards with his name on it because he's not a real conservative. He's not a real Republican. And she was saying, Look, you can't you can't do that. Like these are the these are the candidates. These are our Republican candidates. And uh, you know, so what if I'm never Trumper? Uh, like I don't have to hand out the flyers because it's got Trump's name on it. And she's like, I can tell you that they're going to be never Trumpers. She's like, look, I'm never Trumper, right? I'm a never Trumper. I'm a never Trumper. And what are you going to tell me that I have to do this? And but you don't have like I have to, but you don't have to. That I have to hand out a guy uh, a card with a guy's name on it that I don't think is a Republican, but you get to uh, you you get to have a different card with some other guy's name left off. You know, I, tell you know, try to make that argument to me. I'm a never Trumper. And when they took that audio clip where she says I'm a never Trumper, and they spread it around as if she was saying that, like as a testimonial, and she wasn't. She was the victim of an attack, she of a of a hack of a smear. All right, it's uh, it's dishonest, it's unethical, it's smarmy, it's disgusting, it's everything people hate about politics. It was done by the Haywood Five, those folks in Haywood County. Uh, they were behind it, and so you know, it stuck. So rather than going after the video, like using it and showing here's the whole thing and whatever, like trying to explain it, that can't the, the campaign never did a good job, in my opinion. They never good did a good job of of fighting back against that. Okay, Uh, and then, of course, you had the outside groups that spent money airing the audio clip and just they kept hammering away at her. But even that, I don't think, was enough to hurt the campaign uh, fatally. I mean, she did win the top spot in the original primary, right? She was the top votainer, if you will. Um, Now, what I think hurt her way more, way more than the video, I think what hurt her way more was the way... The campaign got started, and that was because of the way Congressman Mark Meadows resigned his seat. And um, I'm not sure people outside of the 11th Congressional District, I'm not sure people really understand how much that angered a lot of people. I remember I was, you know, on the air. I was still working in radio at WWNC, and uh, Meadows resigned. And we, and, and like I remember sitting at home, and all of a sudden getting a, a message, 
you know, Tea Party, Asheville Tea Party endorses Linda Bennett. I start, oh, she's already got a campaign website set up because everybody got taken off guard. I mean, I was getting phone calls from people. Pete, did you know this was happening? I like, I had no idea this was going to happen. I'm not aware of anybody who had an idea this was going to happen, but oh my gosh, look at that. There's already an endorsement out and there's already a campaign website set up. So I go to the website, you know, whois.com, whatever, and I go there and I find out, oh, look at that. This website for Linda Bennett got set up months ago. Now, I think the explanation that I've heard on that is it, it was simply due to, um, you know, they were wanted to be ready. But Linda Bennett is friends with Mark Meadows and his wife, Debbie. They're family friends, they're, and, and that's fine. And when in talking with Linda Bennett uh, last week, uh, you know, I asked her how she got involved in politics, why she started kind of taking an interest in politics, and she said it was the Tea Party movement. That makes sense, too, right? Um, like around 08, uh, you know, 2008, 2009, she really started getting involved. Um, and it seems like, you know, that was sort of uh, what motivated her. That's what she says motivated her to get into politics, uh, which explains why she got the Tea Party uh, uh, endorsement, you know, pretty quickly. She was aligned with Meadows. She was aligned with the House Freedom Caucus. They endorsed her at Meadows' behest. Um, and according to an Axios.com article uh, about uh, the election results, apparently the endorsements from Trump, that came at the behest, at the request of Debbie Meadows and, uh, you know, Mark's wife. And Mark's wife, you'll recall, was on the bus Women for Trump, the day the Access Hollywood tape was released. And she gets on the air with me uh, and other radio stations, but we were the first site of their statewide bus tour, Women for Trump. And, you know, like, I got to ask you about this tape that just came out today. <laughs> What's your response to this? I thought she did a good job. I thought she handled it well, right? She, she said something to the effect of, um, uh, you know, it was locker room talk. I don't support it, but I still support him. And, uh, he's still a better candidate than Hillary Clinton. And I, like I said, I thought she did a good job with the question. And apparently the president did, too. And maybe she was calling in a marker with the president. But um, that's gone now if she did. I don't know if she did, but that's gone. Right. Uh, because you asked Trump to intervene and he did. And it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough because out on the campaign trail, I think just like uh, Linda Bennett's experience as a you know Tea Party Republican who got involved uh, in, in sort of uh, grassroots organizing and such, uh, uh, you know, in '08 '09. Um, I'm not sure if you you know. There's a lot of infighting that has occurred in Haywood County and uh, but also inside the Republican Party since the rise of Trump, the Tea Party movement and Donald Trump. Like there are a lot of these different factions, and uh, you know, people have. Mm, axes to grind and i think that came out to some extent and when they saw the rapidity in which she launched her campaign how quickly she was up you know within two hours after meadows's resignation announcement um i think people said you know what the fix is in and as we talked the other day with Corey valencourt you know maybe you could make this case that they were that Meadows did this in order to stiff arm a bunch of people such as, you know, Democrats who might have seen the seat now as more vulnerable. Democrats like Brian Turner, state representative. Um, maybe Meadows was also trying to stiff arm, quote unquote, establishment, non Tea Party type candidates. Uh, and that's legitimate, too. I can see that being a play. But the the problem is he also stiff armed everybody else. Right. Everybody else that wanted to run for it. And there are a lot of people that that would have liked and did, you know, heck, there were like 14 people that ended up, you know, driving all the way out to Raleigh, plunking down the thousands of dollars. I think it's like three or $4,000. I forget how much. You got to you gotta, uh, pay the filing fee. And they only had like a day to do it. And that hacked off a lot of people because when you make a decision to run for any elected office, but particularly Congress, you have a lot of people that you got to consult. Right. And this was at the end of the year. You know, this was like December and you're going into the holidays and people need to be able to have discussions with their family. They need to talk to business associates. Uh, hey, you know what? I'm thinking about running for Congress and I don't want to jam you guys up. You know, like all of those discussions, the due diligence period where you talk with your uh, uh, with your you know trusted advisors. A lot of these folks didn't get to have that and they were pretty ticked off about it. 
and they tell other people. They have friends and family. Their trusted advisors, generally speaking, are all going to be Republicans too, right? And so what happens when those people hear that their friend, you know, oh, Pete Callender, he was thinking about running, uh, yo, he's a good friend of mine, and um, yeah, but Pete said that he didn't get any notice, and so he just had to rush into it, and, uh, you know, kind of, it caught him flat-footed, and he wasn't able to mount a campaign, really. Oh, it just really stinks, man. It just really stinks for Pete. And now I'm going to go tell that story to other people. And and what happens is it kind of ripples its way through the entire uh, voting population in the 11th congressional district that was voting for the Republican uh, primary. And I think that a lot of that, it's so, like I said, all of this stuff, way more important. The, the campaigner, in this case, the candidate, Linda Bennett, matters. The candidate matters way more than almost anything else, in my view. Yes, you can have like a bad, you know, election year, bad wave that comes in and washes you out. That totally happens. But by and large, the candidate is what matters. The process is what matters as well. This process here seemed like it was rigged to favor Linda Bennett. And people just don't like that, even if it wasn't. Because I don't know. Like, I I don't know whether or not they tried to coordinate this. I've seen reports where uh, the Bennett uh, campaign and Linda Bennett says that, you know, she, she didn't know that Mark was going to do that, but she was ready just in case because she knew that he had been, you know, offered this job or was thinking about it. And there were press reports about it. So maybe she was just ready for it. And when he when she saw the news, she went, bam, spring this, you know, plan A into action, you know, uh, project Uh, Congress is now in effect, you know, and she made the calls and everything just kind of fell into place very quickly for maybe that's the case. Didn't look like that, though. And that's a really high hurdle to get over um, because people feel like they got they got screwed over by Meadows and by Bennett and they can't get at Meadows. So they're going to get at Bennett. Right. And I think that's what happened, because if you think about it, she won about a third of the vote. Not even because she couldn't get uh, above the 30% in the original primary, you know, uh, forcing the runoff. And and so she did. She got about the same size vote that she got the last time around. So essentially, Madison Cawthorn converted all of the people that were uh, voting for other candidates in that primary. He converted them all to him. And that's that's impressive. You know. People shouldn't take anything away from this guy for doing that and his campaign for doing that. So it was an impressive win. I don't think there was vote fraud that led to this result. I think it was a culmination of things. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, politics is local. Politics is local. Folks knew both of the candidates and they preferred him over her for any of the reasons that I just went through. And as Corey Valencourt outlined in his piece the other day, and we talked to him about, um, a lot of re- these Republicans who are going for Cawthorn, um, they just viewed President Trump's endorsement as, well, I'll say this, based in ignorance, right? That he just didn't know who the candidate is. He's just doing a favor for Mark Meadows, and so he's endorsing uh, who Meadows wanted. But, you know, so it's not even really like Trump knows what he's endorsing. That That's how they looked at it. And they're like, we're still going to vote for Trump. We still love Donald Trump. We just didn't like who he picked in this race. That was it. So I know I'm not looking at it through the prism of Donald Trump and, oh, my gosh, how is it going to hurt him? How is it going to help him? Like, it doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is how does this election now help or hurt the 11th district residents? But that's just me. Have you ever seen a photo of the Blue Ridge Mountains so stunning that you couldn't look away? Well, that was me when I first saw Stacy Redmond's work at redrockphotonc.com. Stacy is from Western North Carolina, shooting landscapes for two decades after he realized life is short. You don't get time back. So do what you love. Don't regret not spending time with family or chasing your dream. His work is brilliant, striking, and easily affordable for any space. See for yourself at redrockphotonc.com. Use promo code PETE for 20% off. That's redrockphotonc.com. Have you been trying to set up or improve your business's website? It can be overwhelming for any of us. I know it was for me. So let my friend Schaefer Smith at Schaefer Smith Design help you with logos, graphics, photos, and online stores, search engine optimization, website maintenance, and security. For professional services, corporate, small business, and entrepreneurs, Schaefer Smith Design. Make your site look professional and user-friendly for your customers and you so you can adapt quickly. SchaeferSmith.com. That's SchaeferSmith.com.
The show is also made possible by Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. Current events have impacted us all in many different ways, and maybe you need to sell your house. But you're thinking, I don't want the traffic coming through my house right now. Well, Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, they've got investors ready to tour your home virtually and potentially make a cash offer, saving you the hassle and stress of buyers having to walk through your home. Start out with a video consult with Rowena Patton. She's the only agent I would call if I'm buying or selling a house. You should, too. Call her today. 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com, and start packing. The show is also made possible by Old Grouch's Military Surplus. Are you ready for disaster? Do you need some advice? Are you looking for military surplus that's real? For more than three decades, the answer has been Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. It's an old-school, traditional store with a mix of modern and vintage items. See my friend Tim. He'll hook you up. He gets new stuff all the time, American-made, because it's real military surplus. Camo, shirts, hats, dog tags, gear, old Grouches on Main Street, downtown Clyde, across the street from the anti-aircraft gun, and at oldgrouch.com. What does the coverage of the North Carolina congressional runoff this week have in common with the coverage of the COVID-19 stuff? So I'm going to get into right now. Uh, because the governor of North Carolina, Roy Cooper, announced that we're going to go to a mask mandate. He's going to mandate masks in all of the uh, in all of the retail businesses in the state and such, and uh, in order to you know uh, to to tamp down the spread of COVID nineteen. And um, this has been a question that has been asked of him for a couple weeks now, and you can tell there's pressure building to uh, to have him issue this, and so he did. Um, meanwhile, you've got the president and the actions that he has taken or hasn't taken and the kind of coverage he gets, you know, everything being through the prism of Trump. Um, I think it does a disservice the way the media decides to cover stories and more importantly, which stories they cover and which ones they don't. White House leaders have long had the presidential bully pulpit to draw attention to certain subjects that they want. And if the president said something, it was by definition news. But Andrew Malcolm, writing at uh, the McClatchy Papers this month, said today, starting at dawn virtually every day and at times running till after midnight, President Donald Trump uses his Twitter account to say way too many things to his 81 million followers. Most are inconsequential, often misspelled stream of consciousness thoughts, and virtually all of them are treated as news. This greatly pleases the president, who relishes such constant attention even when it damages and detracts from his long-term policy goals or short-term re-election goal. The tendency of news people, the late Democrat Adlai Stevenson once said, is, quote, to separate the wheat from the chaff and then print the chaff. Trump supporters will say he's a genius at distracting D.C. media with substance-free messages that consume the well-paid time of these eastern elites. And there is an element of truth to this claim about the man who brought the mentality of a successful reality show executive producer into the White House. But inadvertently, the capital media's willingness to be so manipulated also reveals a disturbing, little noticed change in the idea of what is journalism today. There has always been bias and subjectivity in the daily news business, not just in what was written or said by those men and women and their editors, but more importantly, in what was ignored or dismissed derisively and briefly. Speaking from decades of personal experience, he says, in bygone times, each individual story was generally constructed to recount the who, the what, the when, the where, and the why of the subject at hand. Including select background as necessary, it was a standalone story. That is no longer the case. Today, there is a narrative a story template that each report must fit into. Those that don't fit get dismissed or ignored. And narratives prefer actors, not reporters. We've witnessed numerous confrontational performances by journalists who could gain lucrative book contracts from such virtuous notoriety. Professional journalists should be adversaries questioning, challenging authority, but not antagonists. Truth be told, in an age of outrage that assesses little consequence for incorrect, incomplete, or even fictitious news, confrontational coverage does produce more profitable clicks and 
viewers. Again, that's Andrew Malcolm. Piece titled DC Media is now focused on confrontational coverage and approved narratives. Um, Trust me, this is getting to COVID-19. Michael Crichton, the guy who did uh, Jurassic Park, you know, writer. um, He said in 2002... And you may, you may hear me reference this quote and this, uh, this idea often. He says, you don't have to be right anymore. Nobody remembers. Uh, the world-famous author of such thrillers as Jurassic Park, The Andromeda Strain, uh, is also a medical doctor. He gave a speech titled, Why Speculate? This was given at the International Leadership Forum on April 26, 2002 in California. He criticized the news media, TV and print, for moving away from fact-based reporting to useless speculation. And he said, quote, The reason why it's useless, of course, is that nobody knows what the future holds. So true. Right? The problem is, media carries with it a credibility that is totally undeserved, he says. And it's fairly rewarded, or sorry, unfairly rewarded, by the effect of our selective amnesia. For example, let's say that I with an above-average understanding of widget farming. I know everything there is to know about the widget and how to farm said widgets. I am the leading world expert in widget farming, a.k.a. widgetry. Anyway, um, I pick up the paper. Oh, look at this, an article about the thing that I am the most qualified person on the planet to talk about and think about and and, uh, and, uh, discuss. So it's a story about widget farming. Look at that. Read an article about the topic, and lo and behold, this article has tons of errors. They don't even know how to discern the age of the widget. <laughs> it shows that the author of the piece has no understanding of the facts or issues. So he, Crichton says, quote, You read with exasperation or amusement the multiple errors in the story, and then you turn the page to national or international affairs, and you read the next article and the next, as if the newspaper was somehow more accurate about Palestine than widget farming. You turn the page and you forget what you know. You, like In ordinary life, if somebody consistently exaggerates or lies to you, you soon discount everything they say. In court, you, if you, you know, the, the legal doctrine, falsus in uno, falsus in omnibus, which means untruthful in one part, untruthful in all. But when it comes to the media... We believe, against evidence, that it is probably worth our time to read other parts of the paper, too, you know? When, in fact, it almost certainly is not. The only possible explanation for our behavior is, Crichton said, amnesia. <laughs> I don't know if it's amnesia. Um, he's Look, there's always been a, a proper place for speculation. Like, for example, the Pete Callender show. No, I'm kidding. Um, I do, like, I make, ever since I heard about Crichton's speech and I read this, I have always made a concerted effort to steer clear of the it'll be interesting to see what happens kind of hot take on a story. And I used to do it because it's easy. He's right. It's so easy. And nobody ever remembers. And it's a way that you can say something, sound smart while you're saying it, not actually say anything. There is a place for this kind of speculation. Crichton says it's the editorial page. But journalists in all mediums don't seem to care anymore about keeping stories as neutral and fact-based as possible. One of the greatest compliments I ever got, actually, was around probably 2006, 2007, uh, from a general manager uh, who said, who called me a uh, uh, called me a news Nazi. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because all I would give you is the who, what, where, when, how, why. That's what I would stick to. Opinions and biases have always been in news stories, but most writers always made a conscious effort to overcome the bias and favor facts over opinion. Um, so what happened? Where, where did the shift come from? Um, Crichton chalked it up to, uh, well, two things, I believe. One, it's cheap. It's cheap to do opinion. It's cheap to speculate. Doesn't cost you any money. Won't cost you credibility, right? Even if now, like, you go onto Twitter and you're like, I predict that someone's going to win and someone's going to lose. And then you, uh, you're you proven to be wrong. Uh, there's no penalty for that, right? There's no penalty for not being right about it. Look, this is one of the reasons I don't predict elections anymore. 2016. That was my humbling moment because I thought Trump was going to get blown out. And then he didn't. And I was like, you know what? 
I'm not going to do this anymore. I am not going to predict electoral outcomes because I don't know. I don't know what the future holds. And I had drifted away from my, uh, well, can I say news Nazi nowadays? Am I allowed to say my news fascism? How about that? News fascism. (laughs) So that's one. It's incredibly cheap to make predictions, speculations and such. The other reason is you can't lose. Even though the speculation is correct, only by chance, uh, if that happens, you're basically wrong 50% of the time. If you're right half the time, that means you're wrong the other half of the time, and nobody remembers, so nobody cares. You're never accountable. The audience doesn't remember yesterday, let alone last week or last month. Media exists in the eternal now, this minute, this crisis, this talking head, this column, this speculation. We need to be honest with ourselves, too, okay? We love it. We love the speculation, the drama about the news. No matter how much we might complain about it, we like the drama more than the actual facts. The facts are boring. Oh, we got to watch the news. It's boring. Right? We don't care about the facts so much as what other people think about those facts. What does this have to do with COVID-19? I'm glad you asked. Why was the media coverage so lazy at the beginning of COVID-19. Stephen Miller, Stephen L. Miller, writing at the American, or sorry, yeah, it's uh, the yeah, American Spectator. He said, when the media views its entire mission through a lens of meeting out social justice while presenting itself as the opposition to the current administration, it completely misses the forest for the trees. Usually this just leads to harmless sparring between ideological opponents on the pages of the New York Times opinion section, although actually that's not happening anymore either. But its lazy coverage of the early spread of coronavirus had national and international consequences. President Trump, uh, you remember, ordered all travel from China to end. He did that on January 31st. It was met with hollers of xenophobia from the loudest corners of mainstream media. Those cries have since been memory hold, quite literally in some cases, like at Vox.com. But it's worth revisiting where the worst actors in media stood when the pandemic started. In fact, it was the very next day after Trump's executive order that mainstream media outlets published stories downplaying the threat as merely another xenophobic reaction to foreigners, just like they've done with Trump's position on immigration at the southern border. Vox had tweeted at the time, is this going to be a deadly pandemic? No. They deleted that tweet, by the way. Washington Post said, get a grip, America. The flu is much bigger than coronavirus for now. They also did an op-ed titled, Past uh, Epidemics Prove Fighting Coronavirus with Travel Bans is a Mistake. Then they went uh, further in January 31st, piece called How Our Brains Make Coronavirus Seem Scarier Than It Is. Then they did an op-ed headlined why we, uh, why we Should Be Wary of an Aggressive Government Response to Coronavirus. Right? Like, you know it's a Republican president when the Washington Post is warning people about the federal government doing too much, right? BuzzFeed News said, don't worry about the coronavirus, worry about the flu. CNN's Anderson Cooper said, if you're freaked out about the coronavirus, you should be more concerned about the flu. CNN's Brian Stelter comment, oh, who cares what he says? No, I'm kidding. But well, not really. Nobody cares what he says. But he called, uh, he said that Sean Hannity of Fox was going to celebrate the travel ban while evading the scourge of community spread within the U.S., This was all reflexive coverage to a president that they see as an emotional and oppressive opponent. Trump has made a hobby of hitting the media over the head with whatever bat they hand to him, and it's one of the reasons it's hard to listen to any of their sky-is-falling coverage now. This is what I was talking about. The media started off on, uh, on one narrative, right? It started with one narrative, like Andrew Malcolm was talking about. It's all about narratives. And so this, you know, instead of a story as a standalone story, now the story, the narrative story, that everything has to be fit into this overarching arc of a story is, you know, Donald Trump bad, orange man bad. And he's a racist, he's a xenophobe. And so any any story you can find to to put into that puzzle and make it work, and prop up some, like you're building some some case against him in court, the court of public opinion, right? Well, what happened, though, was that you guys went out there and told everybody that this wasn't a big deal. Like, to this day, there are people who are saying it's still just 
you know, no worse than the flu and all that. They're people who reject the idea that the coronavirus is worse than the flu. And I've had arguments with them, although I will say this, actually, in the last few weeks, it seems to have tapered off a bit. It seems <laughs> it does. It seems to have tapered off a bit. Uh, but there are still a lot of people that, uh, like, for example, they refuse to wear masks. They they believe that the masks are all just a lie. It's just, you know, GovCo trying to make people wear masks, force them to comply or whatever. It's all theater, right? Um now, how do you get up there and say, well, that's not true when the, what's his name, Dr. Fauci, uh, he got up there and told everybody masks aren't effective. The Surgeon General said, don't worry about the masks. Everybody at the beginning of all this, they were like, nah, don't worry about the masks. And then Fauci goes and testifies this week in front of Congress that the reason he told everybody that was because they didn't want to run out of the supplies because they wanted it to go to healthcare workers, to the frontline heroes. So he lied. He told everybody, and th- see, this is the, here's the deal, right? He told a lie, and there are, in a pandemic like this, bad options, okay? Bad options, because what is he supposed to say? Oh, no, no, everybody, go out and get masks, and then everybody goes and gets masks, and then hospital workers don't have any, and then they start dying off because they're the ones that are treating all of the sick people on the front lines. Bad option. What's the other bad option? Tell people that the masks don't work so they don't buy them. We can then uh, uh, divert the resources to the frontline workers, save them. But it means that other people that are not healthcare workers, not getting the masks, they're going to die. That the, that the spread will occur and we're not going to be able to contain it and people are going to die. Bad option A or bad option B. That's what he That's what he was choosing between. And he chose to protect the hospital workers. But it also means he lied, and it also means people did die from that. And now it means that people still don't believe that masks can help. Now, there are studies that raise all sorts of questions. There have been inconclusive studies. And there's, again, we're, we're still trying to evolve and adapt as we learn more about this. And right now, if there's a, if there's a 5% chance that I'm going to prevent spreading COVID-19 to somebody and getting them killed, I'll wear the mask. I'll wear the mask. I don't see it as a political thing. I don't see it as GovCo trying to control me. I don't. I, I see it I see it as uh, putting the, I, I see it as putting a, well, not pointing my gun at the range, not pointing my gun at other people. That's how I see it. Seriously, like I'm going like because that's not for my benefit. I mean, yes, I would go to prison or something like that. But uh, unless I could prove that they like threatened my life, put the gun in their hand. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, it's you don't do those things because you don't want to put other people at risk. It's common courtesy. It's decency. It's consideration. And so I'll wear the mask. That's fine. But you have a lot of people that won't. And they can go back and point to these health experts that said, don't wear the masks. You don't need to. Then there's the modeling. COVID proved to be a crisis, not only for the public health, uh, but for public policy. This is a piece by Eric Felton at Real Clear Investigations. He says, as credentialed experts, media commentators, and elected officials have insisted that ordinary men and women heed the science, the statistical models cited by scientists to predict the spread of contagion and justify the lockdown of the national economy, they've proven to be far off base. Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York complained about the guessing business, he called it, that experts had presented to him dressed up as scientific fact. Quote, all the early... Ex- I'm sorry, that's my Andrew Cuomo. I probably should have I probably should have warned you about that, so it's kind of disturbing. All the early national experts said, here's my projection model. Here's my projection model. They were all wrong. They were all wrong. It's a terrible Andrew Cuomo, I know. Uh, Neil Ferguson of Imperial College London, whose computer modeling of the coronavirus predicted up to 2.2 million U.S. deaths, he has since resigned. A computer model produced by uh, statisticians at Imperial College London had an outsized effect on government policy, predicting up to 2.2 million American deaths from the new coronavirus and as many as 9.6 million people requiring hospitalization. Instead emergency rooms and hospital beds it all but the few hardest hit cities remained empty rather than being overwhelmed by cases many doctors and nurses found themselves out of work right wasn't that the joke like only government only government could cause 
doctors and nurses to be out of work during a pandemic, right? As the staggering social and economic costs of shutdown have become painfully clear, the failure of the models to accurately anticipate what would happen is raising questions about their use to justify life-altering public policy. And here's a question. If computer models projecting the near-term future, so within you're looking at a horizon of a year, right? If the models trying to predict the near-term future of an epidemic are so wrong, what does that mean for the far more complicated computer models predicting the far-off future of the entire planet, right? You can't even get current models right you know, month to month within a year. How do you expect us to believe that you're making accurate predictions for a hundred years from now? Okay. Um, building complex models is both a science and an art. Models may be, may be helpful in thinking about the results of various policies, but <clears throat> a lot of times they're oversold as providing answers with mathematical certainty. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Right, the science, the data, and the facts. Oh my, this is what the science is telling us, and the data and the facts is telling us that, and then the, the, the model and the, the math. And the, okay, some modelers urge humility though about just how certain the models can be and uh, and are and are not. The appearance of certainty is seductive. That false sense of certainty is particularly seductive, especially when the world is desperate to know what lies ahead. The Imperial College of London, their model, suffered from uncertainty over what factors caused the disease to spread. The, uh, consider uh, music concerts, okay? Um, as cities and states trying to reopen gradually across America, the last on the list to be liberated are going to be live performances that entail mass gatherings. And yet, go back to the Imperial College London study from the response team that did so much to stampede the UK into the lockdown, and you'll find this assessment, the original assessment of the danger of crowds. Here it is, quote, Stopping mass gatherings is predicted to have relatively little impact because the contact time at such events is relatively small compared to the time spent at home, in schools or workplaces, and in other community locations such as bars and restaurants. So maybe this is what guys like Governor Cooper are looking at when they don't condemn or don't threaten or chastise or scold the, uh, the, the protesters, the rioters and the looters and such. Like there, I said this earlier, it, it is impressive. You have to admire how fast the left and the media, but I repeat myself, pivot from everybody stay at home or you're going to kill grandma to the, it's okay if you go out and protest in the streets because it's for a good cause. And now back to everybody has to stay home or you're going to kill grandma again, right? Just, they've done a complete 360 on this. And and they pretend that they haven't. Like, right now you've got, this week Governor Cooper said he's not going to allow businesses to reopen for another three weeks because we're seeing some bad trends. Well, gee, Governor, why do you think that might be? Could it be maybe related to all of the people that were pouring out into the streets for the last, you know, month? The people that you walked with and you raised your hand and waved to everybody and pulled your mask down and didn't observe the six feet social distancing with your security detail? I don't know. Might have some impact on it. The spread has already occurred. Not to say that it's it's done. It's going to continue. But he. this is the thing. They refuse to honestly deal with us they're not playing it straight with us right they want us to ignore all of the protests that they applauded and they celebrated and they like mandy cohen would start uh, her press conference by saying you know george floyd his life matter i feel i need to say his name before i even say anything at all like making all of the press conferences about social justice this was an effort that they supported and because they supported it they were willing to, you know, look the other way at the risk. Okay, you know what? I know we called those uh, people who went to the racetracks uh, and the ones who wanted to go to church, we called them uh, reckless and irresponsible. We, we won't use those terms with you. We'll just celebrate your activism. And now 
three weeks later, now that COVID-19 is spreading amongst everybody, and this is the, the, the kicker, we've noticed that there's a real sharp uptick in the number of cases among young people. We don't know why that is. Oh, oh, pick me. I know why. I know why. Teacher, I know why. So now, because they all went out and protested, bars can't open for another three weeks. Fitness facilities, gyms can't open for another three weeks. Because all of these people went out and protested and nobody stopped them from protesting. Nobody scolded them or guilted them and said, hey, look, we agree with you, but you're spreading the virus. Nobody did that. Nobody said that. No, no, no. They dropped the hammer down on the racetrack. Right. The people who wanted to go watch some cars drive around a racetrack, those people, no, 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 they're endangering grandma. Right. Meanwhile, GovCo, that's in charge of regulating the nursing homes where two thirds of all the deaths in the state have occurred. They can't figure out how to test staff every day on the way into the facilities. Right. It's insanity. It's insanity. And they expect us to trust them. To believe them? Like, I, I'm long past that point, folks. I really am. I, I, I've gone long past it. It, it, it. And it happened during the protests. When I watched the governor and his, his uh, uh, cabinet, his secretaries get up there and just avoid any kind of criticism whatsoever about the thing that they told me we all had to lock ourselves down for and we all had to uh, suffer economic ruin right to we had to we had to go into the poorhouse in order to save people's lives and then what happens george floyd gets murdered by a cop up in minneapolis and we need to watch as the cities burn and all of the coronavirus spreads in the mass gatherings okay yeah i'm done i'm done like reggie ham the other day was uh, we had him on the show all models are wrong All the models are wrong, but some are useful. Models are far better as tools to help us think about stuff, get to to kind of get into an area and think about things in a different way, right? They're better to help us think with than they are as truth oracles. We must not think that models have some privileged access to the future, okay? A warning of models a warning about models did you know for example that the cdc estimates that people under the age of 50 have a 99.97 percent survival rate surprised media focuses on panic porn it's what we call it panic porn if you're not scared media is not doing its job it's why you ended up with stories when there were mosquitoes all over the place uh we got west nile virus and oh my gosh west nile is so bad because of all of the standing water because we've had so much rain and then when the rain stopped and now there wasn't mosquitoes giving everybody west nile virus then it was oh my god we're all gonna die from the drought this is the template oh my god we're all gonna die because fill in the blank they ignore the positive or less uh, doomsday-esque data and they speculate as michael crichton talked about they speculate about a great many things and they're never accountable for when the speculation isn't true all right that's a wrap for this episode please remember subscribe to the podcast it's the best way you can help me out if you want to give it a review that'd be fantastic you can also consider becoming a patron of the program you get cool stuff exclusive content links are all in the description of the podcast thanks so much for the support i appreciate it talk to you later don't break anything while i'm gone